as I was coming up the steps into worship, I heard, heard a little girl go, She's got, he's got his big dress on today. <laughs> Let's pray, okay? Lord, grant us in these moments the insight to your word that we might remember your great mercies to us. We might remember and know in our hearts for certain your salvation and the beauty of the things of Christ. And Lord, that we might be wary of the things of damnation, the things that await those who do not understand or know the things of Christ. Lord, that we would flee from those things and cling to the cross. We ask in his precious name. Amen. Now, on previous Reformation Sundays, we've had sermons from the likes of Jonathan Edwards and Clarence Edward Noble McCartney. Uh, Jonathan is probably the uh, preeminent American theologian. Clarence McCartney was a pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh for many years. Both are prominent figures. Clarence was also a prominent figure in the modernist fundamentalist controversy Uh, that racked the Presbyterian Church in the late 20s. Today, our sermon comes from the Prince of Preachers. That's not me. Okay, It is the great Reformed Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Now, Charles Spurgeon never attended seminary, but by the age of 21, he was the most popular preacher in London. He preached to crowds of 10,000 on a regular basis at Exeter and Surrey Halls, and then when the Metropolitan Tabernacle was built, thousands and thousands gathered every Sunday for 40 years to hear his sermons. And again, that was before amplification. Microphones. Sincerely and straightforwardly, he denounced error both in the church and in England and even among his own Baptist comrades. An ardent Calvinist and evangelical, he deplored the trend of the day which was towards the new theology, the new improved version known as biblical criticism. Now, spiritual fervor in England was dwindling, congregations were thinning out, enthusiasm for the gospel was quickly becoming extinct. And Spurgeon wrote, alas, too many ministers are toying with the deadly cobra of another gospel in the form of modern thought. Now, who was chiefly to blame for this decline? Spurgeon put the blame squarely on the preachers. He said, the case is mournful. Certain ministers are making infidels. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as those preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. The decline in the church during during Spurgeon's day became known as the downgrade controversy. Spurgeon made no effort to disguise his contempt for this modern view of theology. He wrote, these destroyers of our churches appear to be as content with their work as monkeys with their mischief. That which their fathers would have lamented, they rejoice in. It now becomes a serious question how far those who abide by faith once delivered to the saints should fraternize with those who have turned aside to another gospel. Spurgeon was now suggesting that true believers might have reason to sever their organizational ties with those who were promulgating this new theology. In his estimation, the truth of the word had been so seriously compromised that true Christians needed to consider the command of 2 Corinthians 6, come out from amongst their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. Now, Charles Spurgeon wrote an article in a publication, The Sword and the Trial, and 
In that article, Spurgeon first put forth this idea and it rocked the evangelical world. Suddenly, this prince of preachers, the, the famed Charles Spurgeon in whom everyone had been behind, was now calling the church to separate from those who were preaching a false gospel. And all the trends of the day were toward unification and harmony and amalgamation and brotherhood. And suddenly he was the lone voice saying, this is what is right and we have to follow it. The church was neither prepared nor willing to receive his counsel at this time. Spurgeon's tight hold on the sovereignty of God and his loyalty to the word of God above everything else would eventually ostracize him and force him out of the Baptist church, which he loved so much. The weakening evangelicals in England and many others considered, considered him to be anathema because he was clinging to the things of the gospel. And many consider that it was the downgrade controversy that caused his early death. Now, the sermon I have selected for us today comes from one of Spurgeon's early sermons. It is on heaven and hell. It was delivered on Tuesday evening, September 4th, 1855, in a field, in a field, King Edwards Road, Hackney. Now, apparently, someone went around and wrote down all of Spurgeon's sermons as he would preach them, because we have almost everything he ever preached, we have in written form today. This sermon in its original form was some 8,000 words. I have shortened it considerably uh, because if you stand up and, and read something, just, you know, it takes about six minutes or seven minutes to read uninterrupted 500 words. So you can imagine we would be here uh, quite some time uh, for that. So I have shortened it, but hopefully I have not changed its emphasis uh, upon heaven and hell. His sermon comes from Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is a land where plain speaking is allowed and where people are willing to afford a fair hearing to anyone who can tell them that which is worth their attention. Tonight I hope to encourage you to seek the road to heaven. I shall also have to utter some very sharp things concerning the end of the lost in the pit of hell. I beseech you as you love your souls, weigh right and weigh what is wrong this night. See whether what I say be the truth of God. If it be not, reject it utterly and cast it away. But if it is, at your peril, disregard it. For as you shall answer before God, the great judge of heaven and earth, and it will go ill with you if the words of his servant and of his scripture be despised. My text has two parts. The first is very agreeable to my mind, and it gives me pleasure. The second is terrible in the extreme. But since they are both truth, they must both be preached. Let us take the first part. Here is a most glorious promise. Many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, what a sweet thought that is for the working man. He often wipes the hot sweat from his face and wonders whether, whether there is a land where he shall have to toil no longer. He scarcely ever eats a mouthful of bread that is not moistened with the sweat from his brow. O oh, weary sons and daughters of Adam, 
You will not have to drive the plowshares into unthankful soil in heaven. You will not need to rise to daily toils before the sun hath risen, and labor still when the sun hath long gone to bed. But ye shall be still, and ye shall be quiet, and ye shall rest yourselves, for all are rich in heaven, and all are happy there, and all are peaceful. Some people think that in heaven we shall know no one, but our text declares here that we shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Then I am sure that we shall be aware that they are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I've heard of a good woman who asked her husband when she was dying, My dear, do you think you will know me when I get to heaven? Shall I know you, he said, why I have always known you while I have been here, and do you think I shall be a greater fool in heaven? I think he answered very well. Dear relatives that have been separated, you will meet again in heaven. One of you has lost a mother, she has gone above. And if you follow the track of Jesus, you shall meet her. You shall recognize your friends. Husband, you will know your wife again. Mother, you will know those dear babes once more. You know how ye hung over their graves when the cold sod was sprinkled over them and said, Earth to earth, dust to dust, and ashes to ashes. But ye shall hear those loved voices again. You shall hear those sweet voices once more. You shall yet know that those whom ye loved have been loved by God. There will be no distinction of the learned and unlearned, clergy and laity in heaven, but we shall all freely be one among the other. We shall feel that we are brethren. We shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I have heard of a lady who was visited by a minister on her deathbed, and she said to him, I want to ask you a question that has been troubling me for some time. And he said, well, what is it? Oh, she said in a very affected way, I want to know if there are two places in heaven, because I could not bear that Betsy in the kitchen should be in heaven alongside of me. She is so unrefined. Well, the minister turned around and said, oh, don't trouble yourself about that, madam. There is no fear for that, for until you get rid of your accursed pride, you will never enter the gates of heaven. Now, we bless God and we thank him that there will be no separate table, one and for another. The Jew and the Gentile will sit together, the great and the small will feed together in the same pasture. But my text hath yet a greater depth of sweetness, for it says, Many shall come, and many shall sit down. For if there are many to be saved, then why shouldn't I be saved? And why shouldn't you be saved this very day? Why should not the man over there in the corner say, Can I not be among the multitude? And may not the poor woman there take heart? Why should I not also be saved, she says. Cheer up, child of sorrow, for there is still hope for thee. I can never know that a man is past the grace of our Heavenly Father. There be a few that have sinned that sin that is unto death, and God gives them up. But the vast hope of mankind are yet within reach of his sovereign mercy. Look again at my text, and you will see where these people come from. They are to come from the east and from the west. From the uttermost parts of the earth there shall come many to sit down in the kingdom of God. But I do not think the text refers to geography as much as spirituality. When it says that they shall come from the east and west, I think it does not refer to nations particularly, but to different kinds of people. Now, the east and the west signify those who are the very farthest off from religion, yet many of them will be saved and many will get to heaven. 
There is a class of persons who will always be looked upon as hopeless. Many a time I have heard a man or a woman say of such a one, he cannot be saved, he is too abandoned. What is he good for? Ask him to go to a place of worship, and he will not, for he was drunk Saturday night. What would be the use of reasoning with him? What good will it be to speak to him? Well, now hear this, ye who think your fellows are worse than yourselves, ye who condemn others, whereas ye are often just as guilty. And Jesus Christ says, many shall come from the east and west. There will be many in heaven that were drunkards once. I believe among that blood-bought throng there are many who reeled in and out of the tavern half their lifetime. But by the power of divine grace, they were able to dash the liquor cup to the ground. They renounced the riot of intoxication and fled from it and served God. Yes, there will be many in heaven who are drunkards on earth. There will be many who are harlots. Some of the most abandoned will be there. Now, you remember the story of George Whitfields, don't you? That there would be some in heaven who were called the devil's castaways. Some that the devil would hardly think good enough for him, yet Christ has given his life for them. But just at that time, as Lady Whitfield was chastising him for this view, there happened to be heard a ring at the bell, and Whitfield went downstairs to answer the door. Afterwards, he came up and said to his wife, What do you think that poor woman had to say to me just now? She was a sad profligate and said, Oh, Mr. Whitfield, when you were preaching, you told us that Christ would take the devil's castaways, and I am one of them. And that was the means of her salvation. Fetch me out the worst, and I would still preach the gospel to them. Fetch me out the vilest, and I would still preach to them. Because I recollect that my master said, Go ye into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in that my house might be filled. Many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, many people have said, we will not have anything to do with religion, yet they have been converted. I've heard of a man who once went to chapel to hear the singing, and as soon as the minister began to preach, he would put his ear, his fingers in his ears so that he would not hear the words. And by and by, as he sat there, an insect lighted upon his face, and he pulled his finger out to wipe it away. And just then the preacher said, He that hath ears, let him hear. The man listened, and God met with him at that moment to his soul's conversion. He went out a new man, a changed character. He who came in to laugh retired to pray. He who came in to mock went out to bend his knee in penitence. He who had entered to spend an idle hour went home to spend an hour in devotion to God. The sinner became a saint. The prolificate became a penitent. Who knows that there might not be some like that here. The gospel wants your consent. It gets it. It knocks the enmity out of your heart. You say, I do not want to be saved. And Christ says, you shall be saved. He makes your will turn around and then you cry, Lord, save me or I perish. If Jesus Christ were to stand here this day, what would many people do with him? Some people have said we would make him king, but I do not believe it. They would crucify him again if they had that opportunity. If he were to come and say, here I am, I love you, you will be saved, not one of you would consent if left to your own will. If he should look upon you with those eyes before whose power the lions have crouched. If he spoke with that voice which poured forth a cataract of eloquence like a stream of nectar rolling down from the cliffs. Not a single person would become his disciple. No, it takes the power of 
the Spirit, to make men come to Jesus Christ. He himself said, no man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. And here we have it. They shall come, and no power can stop them from coming. And now, thou chief of sinners, listen one moment while I call thee to Jesus. There is one person here today who thinks himself the worst soul that ever lived. There is one who says to himself, I do not deserve to be called by Christ. I call thee, thou lost, most wretched outcast, this day by authority given me of God. I call thee to come to my Savior. Many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is the glorious promise of the passage. The second part of my text is heartbreaking. I heard a minister who once said to his congregation, If you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be sent to that place which is not polite to mention. Not polite to mention. Now, if I saw a house on fire over there, do you think I would stand and say, I believe the operation of combustion is proceeding yonder? No, I would yell, fire, 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 and everybody would know what I meant. So if the Bible says the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness, am I to stand here and mince the matter at all? God forbid. We must speak the truth as it is written. It is a terrible truth, for it says the children of the kingdom shall be cast out. Now who are these children? Well, I will tell you. The children of the kingdom are those people who are noted for the externals of piety, but who have nothing of the internals of it. They have no grace. They have no life. They have no Christ, and they shall be cast into the outer darkness. Again, these people are the children of pious fathers and mothers. There is nothing that touches a man's heart, Mark, you like talking about his mother. Ah, And there are some of you children of the kingdom who can remember your mothers. Your mothers took you on her knee and taught you early to pray. Your father tutored you in the ways of godliness, and yet you are here today without grace in your heart, without hope of heaven. You are going downwards towards hell as fast as your feet can carry you. Now there are some of you who have broken your poor mother's heart. Oh, if I could tell you what she has suffered for you when at night you have been indulging in your sin. Do you know what your guilt will be, ye children of the kingdom? If you perish after a pious mother's prayers and tears have fallen upon you, I can conceive of no one entering hell with a worse grace than a man who goes with the drops of his mother's tears falling upon his head and the prayers of his father biting at his heels. Some of you will inevitably endure this doom. Some of you, young men and women, shall wake up one day and find yourselves in utter darkness while your parents shall be up there in heaven, looking down upon you with upbraided eyes, seeming to say, What, after all we did for you, all we said, and ye have come to this. The grandfather's prayers and the grandmother's prayers and the father's and the mother's prayers might be piled on top of one another until they reach the stars, but they cannot make a ladder tall enough for you to get to heaven by. You must seek God for yourself. God must seek you himself. You must have a vital experience of godliness in your heart, else you are lost, even though all your friends were in heaven. That was a dreadful dream which a pious mother once had and told her children. She thought the judgment day was come. The great books were open. They all stood before God. 
And Jesus Christ said, separate the chaff from the wheat, put the goats on the left, put the sheep on the right. The mother dreamed that her children were standing in the middle of the great assembly, and the angel came and said, I must take the mother, she is a sheep, she must go to the right, the children are goats, and they must go to the left. She said, my children, I taught you well, I trained you up, and you forsook the ways of God, and now all I have to say is, amen to your condemnation. Thereupon they were snatched away, and she saw them in perpetual torment while she was in heaven. Oh, to think that you have been so well trained and should be lost, while many of the worst will be saved. It will be the hell of hells for you to look up and see poor Jack the drunkard lying in Abraham's bosom while you who have had a pious mother are cast into hell simply because you would not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I must undertake the doleful task of telling you what is to become of the children of the kingdom. Jesus Christ says that they are to be cast into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. First, notice, they are to be cast out. They are not said to go, but when they come to heaven's gates, they are to be cast out. As soon as hypocrites arrive at the gates of heaven, justice will say, there he comes. He spurned his father's prayer. He mocked his mother's tears. He forced his way downward against all the advantages mercy has supplied. And now the angel binding you hand and foot holds you in one single moment over the mouth of the chasm. He bids you look down, down, down. There is no bottom and you hear coming up from the abyss the solemn moans and cries and screams of the tortured souls. You quiver, your bones melt like wax, your marrow quakes within you. Where is now thy might and thy boasting and thy bragging? You shriek and cry and beg for mercy, but the angel with one tremendous grasp seizes you fast and hurls you down with a cry of, away, away, and down you go into the bottomless pit forever. You shall be cast out. And where are you to be cast to? You are to be cast into outer darkness. You are to be put in a place where there will be no hope, for in hell there is no light and no hope. They have not even the hope of dying, those who are in hell. They have not even the hope of annihilation. They are forever, forever, forever lost. On every chain in hell there is written the word forever. In the fires they blaze out the words forever. Above their heads it is written forever. Their eyes are galled and their hearts are pained with the thought that it is forever that they will be there. Oh, if I could tell you tonight that hell would one day be burned out and that those who are lost might be saved, there would be jubilee in hell. But it cannot be, for it is forever. What is it that the lost are doing? Well, they are weeping and gnashing their teeth. Do you gnash your teeth right now? You would not do it except that you were in pain and in agony. Well, in hell there is always gnashing of teeth. And methinks if there are any who will have to gnash their teeth more than others, it will be the seducers. They who see those that they have led from the path of virtue. Have any of you tonight upon your conscience the fact that you have led others into the pit? Oh, may sovereign grace forgive you. Some of you will have to account for other sin when you get to hell as well as your own. Oh, what weeping and gnashing of teeth there will be forever in that pit. I see a gray-headed man over there. Are your gray hairs a crown of glory or a fool's cap to you? 
Are you on the very verge of heaven? Are you tottering on the brink of your grave and sinking down to perdition? Let me warn you, gray-headed man, your evening is coming. What wilt thou do with 70 wasted years to answer for, with 70 years of criminality to bring before God? God gives these grace this night to repent and to put your trust in Jesus. And you, middle-aged men, you are not safe, for you may soon die. A few mornings ago, I was roused early from my bed by the request that I would hasten to see a dying man. I hurried off with all speed to see the poor creature. But when I reached the house, he was but a corpse. As I stood in the room, I thought, that little man thought he should die so soon. There were his wife and children and friends. They little thought he would die, for he was hale, strong, and hardy not just two days ago. Let me therefore warn you by the mercy of God and press the matter home to your hearts. God has said that whosoever shall call on his name shall be saved. And now ye youths and ye maidens, one word with you. Perhaps you think that religion is not for you. Oh, let us be happy, you say. Let us be merry and joyous. But how long, how long? Oh, till I am 21. Are you sure you will last that long? Let me tell you one thing. If you have no heart for God now, you will have none then. Men do not get better if left alone. It is with them as it is with the garden. If you leave it alone and permit weeds to grow, you will have more weeds at the year's end. Men, if you are felt or right, you would say, I must run to God and ask Him to give me repentance now, lest I should die before I have found salvation in my Lord Jesus Christ. Now, One word in conclusion. I have told you of heaven and I have told you of hell. What is the way then to escape from hell and be found in heaven? I have nothing but the same old gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. There is nothing here of works. It does not say he who is a good man shall be saved, but he who believes and is baptized. Well, what is to believed? It is to put your trust entirely upon Jesus Christ. Now, it is no venture to trust in Christ, not in the least. He who trusts in Christ is quite secure. Now, I thank every one of you, and above all, I beg you, if there be reason or sense in what I have said, bethink yourselves of what you are, and may the blessed Spirit reveal to you your state. May he show you that you are dead, that you are lost, and that you are ruined. May he make you feel what a dreadful thing it would be to sink into hell. May he point you to heaven. May he take you as the angel did of old and put his hand upon you and say, Flee! 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 Look to the mountain. Do not look behind. Stay not on the plain. And may we all meet in heaven at last. And there we shall be happy forever. Let's pray. Lord, in these words of the distinction between heaven and hell, of the great chasm that is between that none can cross, our time of salvation is here in this world. It is not to be put off, for you say today is the day of salvation. It is not tomorrow. For if you have opened our eyes to our need for Jesus Christ, if we have a sense of our own sinfulness and 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 feel the weight of that pressing upon us, that you call us on this day to seek forgiveness, to repent and to turn from those things, for our only hope lies in 
Jesus Christ. For even though we are sinners, he loves us and has given his life for us. Come upon us today, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes to the things of Christ, that we might know salvation, that for those who walked in doubting, they may have assurance. For those walked in not knowing, they may today know for sure that Jesus Christ has called them into a relationship, that their sins might be cleansed, that the burden that rests upon them might be taken, that he would bear it, and they would know his grace and his peace and his joy. Lord, that we might flee the things that would tie us and lead us to the things of hell. For the punishment and, and the thought is too great to bear that it would be forever the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. But as painful as that thought is, so is the glorious thought of forever in your presence. For when you call us by name, we can't but answer and follow you. Lord, today, come and call us by name. That our lives will be forever changed by the grace of Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.